So turn with me to Romans chapter 7 for our study tonight. Romans chapter 7. G.K. Chesterton, he wrote for the London Daily Observer, and a woman pressed him to write an article on what is the problem with the world today. What do you think he'd write? And he responded to this woman, and he said, I can sum up all of the problems of the world in two words. I'm the problem, which is actually three words. A lot of times in our culture, we don't want to talk about sin. I mean, when was the last time that you heard a conversation that was directed at sin? Or when we admit sin in our lives? What are some other code words that we use for sin? Well, I'm dysfunctional. That sounds a lot better than I sinned. I'm, I'm dysfunctional. Well, who's not dysfunctional? Or I've got issues. That's a lot more comforting than to say, I sinned or I'm a sinner. The book of Romans really addresses sin, doesn't it? The beginning of Romans, the first two chapters, declare the problem of sin. Lays out for us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then there's the good news. Chapter 3, 4, and 5 is the penalty of sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Never get tired of studying those chapters and looking how Jesus gave his life, died, and rose again so that we could be forgiven, that we would be justified, declared righteous by God, that God doesn't see our sin. He's forgiven us. We're robed in Christ's righteousness, just as though we've never sinned. And then if you were here with us last week, it deals with the power of sin. So not only do we have forgiveness, but we also have freedom from sin and identifying to the fact that we're crucified with Christ, we're buried and risen in newness of life. Then we go into chapter 7, and we'll find that Paul has this preoccupation with a personal struggle with sin. He just goes round and round in circles of how he wants to do this, but he ends up doing the opposite. The things that he wishes to do, he doesn't do. The things that he doesn't want to do, he ends up doing, and who can deliver him from this body of death. I think that this is one of the most relatable chapters in all of Scripture, because we're there. We live this. This is our lives. This is our own struggle with sin. And there's an answer to this preoccupation with sin, and it's Jesus Christ. It's to become occupied with him and focused upon him. So I I hope that tonight you find this to be a refreshing chapter. I'm thankful that Paul was transparent with us in his own struggle with sin. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Or do you not know, brethren, For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So he's writing to Jewish believers that understand the law. And they understand what the law teaches. And he says the the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. It's the the driving force in his life. And we go to verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. In the law, the first five books of the Bible, there was allowance for a husband to divorce his wife, but a wife didn't have the legal ability to divorce her husband. And that's what's referred to here. It refers to the wife, to the woman. She's bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if he dies, 
then she's free. She's released from her husband. And this is an illustration of our relationship with the law. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she has married another man. So she's free to remarry if her husband dies. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who's raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So part of the fact that we're united with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power of sin has been broken in our lives, but we also died to the law, and we died to legalism, so that we're free to be married to Christ. We're able to live under the new covenant instead of the old covenant, because there's no problem with the law. In fact, Matthew 5 tells us that heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away. Not the smallest writing of the law will pass away. So the problem has never been the law. The problem is us. So in order for us to be free from the law, free from legalism, free from this mentality that I have to earn or deserve God's favor, I have to earn salvation, I have to earn sanctification, is someone had to die. And it wasn't going to be the law, so it had to be us. And when we died and then we're risen in newness of life, now we're able to be married to Christ and serve out of love instead of to serve out of legalism. Now, to illustrate this, there's a woman who is married to Mr. Perfect. I mean, he was completely perfect. In fact, when he woke up in the morning and she woke up in the morning, his hair was just automatically in every perfect place. I can't get my hair to do that even after I've tried for several minutes, but he was perfect and his hair was in the perfect spot and his breath smelled minty fresh every morning. He would go down and he would make the coffee for her and it was at the perfect temperature to get just the right flavor out of the coffee, make the perfect breakfast. He always said the right thing at the right time. But as this relationship progressed, he actually came quite the bummer to be married to. Because she would make dinner and he'd come home and it would be a fabulous meal, six courses. And then he'd say, you know what? The parsley is not quite right. You, you messed up a little bit on the green beans. And have you looked at your hair in the mirror? Your hair is not in the perfect place. Now, as much as we may think it would be nice to be married to Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect, it would actually be very draining. Agreed? And that's the relationship with the law. And when your relationship with God is based on legalism, it's extremely draining. It's going to lead to pride. I fulfilled the law. And why can't everybody be like me? Why can't they do the systems of rules and regulations just like me? Or it leads to condemnation, doesn't it? I felt short. I have this system of law that was put in place. And it's so easy for us to put together our own little system of law. Say, I need to get up and do my devotions every morning at five. That's my New Year's resolution. And you do that for a period of time. And then inevitably, you fall asleep again with the snooze button. And you hit it. And you hit it and you hit it and then you wake up and you feel so condemned. Does God love you any less because you slept in that day? 
because you didn't fulfill your, your system of law. And what a freeing way. It's going to lead to exhaustion. It's going to lead to depression. It's going to lead to condemnation if it's this rules-based relationship with God. And now we can be married to Christ. And what a far greater relationship than rules, than relationship, where we're responding to God's grace instead of it being a responsibility. I think that this is very subtle and it's very powerful. There's a part of our flesh that loves the law and we're going to gravitate towards that. In fact, there's a lot of ministries that appear to be effective on the surface because they're giving law to people instead of giving Jesus to people. And they're saying, here's the requirements. Here's what you need to do. And if you want to be an effective Christian and you want to be a little bit better than the other Christians, they don't come out and say that, but that's the message that they give subtly, that then here it is, and your holiness is based on, on what you do. And then people go, you know, I, I'm kind of attracted to that. There's, some, there's something there that, that resonates with me. And then before you know it, they're sucked into it. We don't even need someone to preach it to us. Our own flesh just goes there. Our own flesh is, is comfortable there, but it doesn't bring transformational life. And Paul's really struggling with this, and he's sharing this amazing truth that now we can be married to another. It's not legalism, it's love. An amazing freedom that God gives to us in Christ that leads to greater holiness. So we go on into verse 5. It says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Flesh is speaking of not walking in the Spirit. In context here at this point, it's speaking of before we knew Christ as our Savior. Paul's saying, when I was in this place of being in the flesh, all the law did was it aroused the sinful passions and it brought about the fruit of death. Has there ever been laws that changed your life? Has there ever been laws that have brought you closer to Christ? I don't know what it is about law, but it does arouse in us sinful passions. There's, there's just that desire for rebellion as soon as there is a law. As soon as someone tells you you can't do something, your flesh wants to do it. Like, don't think of a pink elephant. Do not think of a pink elephant. You're thinking of a pink elephant. You rebelled, right? Someone draws a line. It's, your flesh just goes, I want to step over it. And then if your flesh doesn't want to break that rule, then your flesh wants to keep it and brag about it. I didn't think of a pink elephant. <laughs> I didn't cross the line. <laughs> I'm, I'm great. I'm awesome. Look, look at me. I'm a, I'm a rule keeper. And see how the law does this? It, it arouses. And Paul says, this is what I found the law to do. It, it actually aroused sinful passion inside of me. And it brought about this terrible fruit of death in my life. In verse 6, but now we've been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So with our illustration with this woman who is married to Mr. Perfect, what had to happen? She had to die. She was then risen and being able to be married to another. The law wasn't going to die. We had to die. And we died with Christ so that now we can serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. This goes back to the book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament, the prophets, when God 
predicted the new covenant where he said that he was going to write his law, his commandments upon our hearts. It was going to be internal instead of external. It was going to be led by the Spirit. It was going to be led out of relationship instead of the oldness of the letter of rules and regulations. So this means that the Spirit of God may wake you up one morning nice and early to spend time with God. Come on, get up. There's a reason why you can't sleep. I want to spend time with you. Get in the Word. Get in prayer. And then there's going to be other mornings where the Spirit's going to say, sleep in. You need a little bit of extra rest. And I'm just as close to you while you're sleeping in than if you were getting up and you were praying and reading your Bible. It's, it's a relationship. It's a, it's a walk in the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God saying, you know what? You probably shouldn't hang out with them because they're going to lead to, to your destruction. Oh, you need to go talk with this person. They're in need. You need to take some time to invest in them. This goes much further than the law could ever do. The law is these external pressures that's put upon ourselves that we can never hold up to. But the Spirit is the inward strength and it leads to life. In a few more verses, Paul's really going to open up about his own struggle with sin and his own preoccupation with sin. And it's going to lead into chapter 8. We won't get into chapter 8 tonight. But in chapter 8, he mentions the Spirit more than any other chapter in the book of Romans. He's getting it. He's understanding it. He's wanting us to get it and understand it as well. As the victory over sin, it doesn't happen through rules and regulations. It happens through the power of the Spirit. It happens through the newness of the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Relying upon the Spirit. Not by power or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And there's a big part of us that goes, that's uncomfortable. I just want some rules. Give me some rules. I can keep some rules. But eventually, we get to a broken place in our Christian life. We go, you know, rules doesn't bring transformation. I need Jesus. I need the power of the spirit. I need to listen to the spirit and be led by the spirit of God. This is exciting to me. When you think about ways that you serve that are full of life, it's filled with love and it's not filled with law. And I do think marriage is a great illustration. If you're married and you serve your spouse, do you do it out of law? Do you do it out of duty? Do you do it out of requirement? Do you do it out of, well, if I do the dishes and I do this and I do that, then I'm going to receive love in return? I hope that that's not the kind of marriage relationship you have. I hope that you're serving out of the newness of life. You're you're serving out of relationship. You're serving out of genuine love. And I just appreciate you. I love you. I like spending time with you. I like doing nice things for you. And that's what God desires. He pursues us with love. He pursues us with passion. And he wants us to serve out of that newness of life through the Spirit. I love the way this is described as well. It says the newness of life and not the oldness of the letter. You know, whether we like it or not, from a physical perspective, oldness is not real attractive. It has its own beauty in a sense, but you know, you, you look at a really, really old car, okay? It's aging. You know, we, I look at my body that it's a, approaching 40, and it's not quite what it was when I was 22. You know, I would take the newness of 22 over 40, you know, getting close to knocking on the door of 40. But yet, there's something so wonderful about new life, isn't there? When a baby is born, 
It's one of the most amazing experiences in, in all of life. If you garden and you, you plant a seed and then you see this newness of life take place. If you've been here for any period of time, you know that I like grass. I'm a sucker for grass. And you know, when I plant fresh seed in my yard and in my lawn and it comes up, it's so green and there's newness of life. And I could just, I, sometimes I just get down in my yard and I'm just watching it. And, I'm just, <laughs> and then I go in the house and I'm like, guys, you got to check this out. There's this, I really do this. I'm not exaggerating. It gets, it gets me excited. You know, every time I see somebody come to know Christ, as their savior and that newness of the ultimate life, it pumps me up. It gets me excited. There's a guy here Sunday morning and, and he comes down right here along this wall and he talks with Pastor Rich and he says, I'm ready. And Rich says, you're ready for what? He says, I want to do it. And Rich is like, you want to do what? And he says, I want Jesus. <laughs> and he prays to, to get saved. And Rich was leading him to that point of that public profession and, and declaring his need, need for Christ. There's nothing better than that. And what do you want? Do you want oldness of letter? Do you want me to get up here and tell you, okay, these are all the things you should do. These are all the things you shouldn't do. Or do you want Jesus? I want Jesus. And Jesus is fully given to us. And his grace and his mercy and his kindness. And as we're connected to him, and we realize his love, we respond to it through the power of his Holy Spirit. And there becomes this newness of life. Classic questions from Paul as he's going through Romans. He's teaching through questions. He's saying, what shall we say then is the law sin? Certainly not. His question in chapter 6 was, well, should we continue in sin that grace would abound? Certainly not. And here he's saying, you know, is there some problem with the law? Is, is the law sin? And God forbid, certainly not. The problem's not with the law. He goes on, on the contrary... I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. For I wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So the law has its perfect place in God's plan. The law brings us to the place of seeing our need for Christ, seeing our need for his grace and salvation and sanctification. And Paul says, I wouldn't have been aware of covetousness in my life if it wasn't for the law that revealed to me that covetousness was wrong. How do you know you're speeding if there's no speed limit? So the law plays its place in our lives. Paul's opening up his heart here about his own struggles with sin. It's covetousness. We don't know in what area. We don't know if it was with possessions. We don't know if it was with prestige. But in some area of life, he longed for what someone else had been blessed with. And in Philippians 4, Paul writes and he says, I've learned that whatever state I'm in, whether abounding or abased, to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This was his struggle. It was something that didn't come naturally. An area that he had to learn through the grace of God and the power and the strength of God. Verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So once again, he's showing how the law had this negative impact upon him. That taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. The sin was already there inside of the Apostle Paul. The law simply brought it out. And I can relate to this because I grew up in a Christian family. I went to a Christian school. 
And I went to a pretty traditional church up until the time we were about 13. And so there was an abundance of laws. There was abundance of rules. One of the things, and I don't know what it was, it's like now, but Christian schools, the ones that I went to, were really good at a lot of rules. <laughs> so here's all the rules. Here's all the do's and don'ts. Here's all the things that, that you have to do. And the church that I grew up in tended to lean heavy on the rules. And so if someone came into church and they had a hat on, and they'd never been to church before in their life. And I very quickly picked up on this. Oh, here's somebody new. It was a small church. And if they came in with their hat, here came the, the ushers. And they say, you can take off your hat or we're going to have to ask you to leave. And I just didn't understand that. And I was like, ah, oh, I, don't, I don't get this. And all of these laws and all these rules and do this and do that, it did exactly what verse 8 declared. It just invoked in me this desire for rebellion. It just invoked in me this desire to say, I want to break the rules. Was it the law's problem? No. It was the problem inside of me. And it probably evokes one of two things in you. And I can tell by the way you're looking at me. Some of you are going, oh, I can relate. That's what rules do to me as well. And some of you are looking at me like, I need to find a new church because, <laughs> because I'm a rule keeper. I'm, I keep the rules. And I, I, I'm so shocked that that's what rules do to you. But it invokes pride in you. That's what the laws do. It, it evokes pride in you. It evokes rebellion in me. And that's what Paul's saying here. Is this, this is what the law is good at. Is it, it reveals, it produces in us this evil desire. So let, let's think this through as we seek to grow in our relationship with Christ and help others grow in their relationship with Christ as well. Is we want to make sure that we get Jesus, that we walk with Jesus, we understand the grace of Jesus, and we point other people to Jesus as well. Because it's a relationship with Jesus that saves, and it's a relationship with Jesus that transforms. And I think a lot of times in our love for people, we put a lot of rules on them. We say, here's the rules. But if we don't give them Jesus, they won't have the motivation for holiness, nor the power for holiness, and it'll, it'll just turn into legalism. So rules without relationship lead to what? They lead to rebellion. And so we want to point people to a relationship with Jesus Christ that's a response to grace, then the holiness makes sense. So I'm not preaching or teaching, the scripture's not preaching or teaching an absence of holiness. It's a different way of getting there through relationship instead of through legalism. So we go on into verse 9. I was once alive, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revealed and I died. So he's saying, I felt alive until I read the law, and then the law revealed my sin. If you really spend time reading the law, it effectively reveals our sin, and it does bring us to that place of, of death. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So he's saying, I had the expectation that the law was going to bring life, but instead it brought death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. So again, he's emphasizing how the commandment brought out the sin. It deceived him. He thought it would bring life, but then it brought death and, and it killed him. In verse 12, therefore the law is holy and the commandments holy and just and good. He says there's no problem with the law. The problem lies inside of Paul. The, the, the lies inside of us as well. 
and the problem of sin. The law in the Old Testament, any laws that we create for ourselves and others, it doesn't deal with the problem of sin. Not for forgiveness, not for freedom, not for the power to be able to live a changed and transformed life. Verse 12, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. So, so it's not that the law has become death to Paul, but sin. So he's owning it. He's saying sin's the problem that it might, that it might appear sin was producing death in me what is good. So that sin through the commandment but might become exceedingly sinful. In verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under death. The law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under death. You ever felt like you're in that place? You're in verse 14. You're like, the word of God is good. The commandment of God is, is good. But I'm carnal and I'm sold under sin. And this is Paul writing this experience as a believer and knowing the truths of Romans chapter 6, but yet he's still struggling with his sinful nature. 1 Corinthians 12 or 2 and 3 says that there's three types or states of individuals. One is the natural man. That's someone who doesn't know Christ as their Savior. They're just following their flesh. They're following the prince and the power of the air, which is Satan, the natural man. And then we have the spiritual man who's focused on the things of God and the Spirit of God. But then we have the carnal man, which relates to the physical. And it's this battle between the natural and the spiritual. And it's a lot of times where we are in our walk with God. We want to be in that place where we're spiritual, but yet we still struggle with our sinful nature. We still struggle with our, our flesh, and so we're somewhere in the middle, and Paul describes it as carnal. Now, I do take a lot of comfort in what Paul says in these verses, because if we didn't have this transparency from Paul, there'd be no hope in our own wrestling with sin. There'd be no hope in our own carnality with sin in those times where we find this desire to do what's spiritual, but we also find our flesh is battling in a great way. So verse 15, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. So he's trying to make sense of his own behavior. And this is why this chapter is called the preoccupation of sin. Good luck trying to make sense of your own behavior. Paul's saying, I, I don't understand what I'm doing. For what I will to do, that I don't practice, but what I hate, that I do. This is so frustrating, isn't it? What I will to do, I do not practice. So you wake up in the morning, at some point in your week, a New Year's resolution, you say, you know what? I'm really tired of this sin. I'm really tired of this struggle. I'm tired of the damage that it does my relationship with God, my relationship with others. I'm just not going to do that anymore. I'm going to commit to, to not do that anymore. And how long does that last? Maybe till two in the afternoon. <laughs> maybe till Thursday afternoon if you're real lucky. But it doesn't last, does it? And ultimately, we end up not doing those things that we desire to do. We see this happen in so many areas of our lives. All right, I'm getting serious about exercise. Get in a habit of exercise. And then what happens? Life happens. Sickness happens. Busyness happens. And this is me personally. I haven't went for a jog since Thanksgiving Day. 
I was feeling so good about myself. I went on Thanksgiving Day. I haven't been out since. And I even got new jogging shoes. <laughs> and these babies have been from the house to the car, from the car to the church, from the church back to the car. What happened? I'm not doing what I set out to do. So I'm running home tonight. No, that's <laughs> just joking. It, it's the reality of life. It, it's the reality of the lack of power outside of Jesus Christ. And Paul experienced it as well. But then it gets worse. He says, the things I hate, that I do. So, so I'm not doing the things that I want to do. And then the things that I, I don't want to do. In fact, I, I absolutely hate these things. Then I end up doing them. And that's what we hear in our own experience and we hear from others, isn't it? This is what we hear from people that don't know Christ as their Savior. It's like, I don't want to be this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to keep falling into this. And even as believers, Paul's writing this as a believer, it's the same thing for us. I actually hate this. I hate this about myself. I, I hate this struggle. But yet for some reason... I still find myself doing it. And it's extremely frustrating. In verse 16, If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. So my own disobedience shows the perfection and the goodness of the law. And, and so it's confirming my need for a Savior. It's confirming my own desperation. In verse 17, but now it's not no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul's understanding the destructive force of sin in his life. He's saying it's this force of the sinful nature that's inside of me. Does this mean in verse 17 that it releases us of the responsibility of sin? No. When we look over the whole counsel of God, we're responsible before God for our sin and our sinful choices but it does show the destructive force of sin. In verse 18, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I don't think that we believe this. We're saying, oh, oh I believe this about myself. I, believe, I know, I know I'm a sinner. Then how can we get so disappointed when we blow it? How can we condemn ourselves so bad when we blow it, because deep down, we're convinced that we're a lot better than that. <laughs> we go, yeah, there is some good in me. And we prove that by the response to our own failure. And Paul comes to this place and he's saying, you know what? I just, I've blown it so much. And we don't see in Paul this reprobate life, this rebellious life where he's out doing all these crazy things. He, he's talking about an inward struggle that he has with covetousness that he can't get over, but he knows it's in his heart, and so he's guilty before God, and this is in his conclusion, that in me dwells no good thing. I think this is a healthy place for us to get in reality. If we can accept it by personal experience and the truth of God's word, because it does free us from legalism, and it brings us to a dependency upon Christ, and then when there's a dependency upon Christ, there's fruit. And we understand it was nothing that we did to contribute to the equation. We don't go around boasting at our effort, our system of law. We don't write books on how this equation worked in our lives. And now it can work in your life if you only do this. We go around boasting of Jesus. Amen? We, 
we know ourselves, we know our own sin, we know our own struggles, and we go, if there's anything good in my life or through my life, there's one reason, it's Jesus, because in me dwells no good thing. It's a humbling place to be, it's a broken place to be, but it's a good place for be, to be. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Do you relate? I have the will to do it. I have the will to read the Bible. I have the will to share the gospel. I have the will to overcome this sin. But how to do it, that's where I get tripped up. I don't have the power to do it. I don't have the system. I've tried every system. I've tried every bit of power that is given to me. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. There's just a lot of do-do in this chapter. Verse 20, now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Do you see Paul's preoccupation with the sin? It's all he's thinking about. It's consuming him. You could go through this section in Romans 7 and just circle the word I. It's over and over and over again. Paul's Paul's just tripped up by his own failure and, and his own sin, and he's beginning to repeat himself. And that's what happens when we get preoccupied with sin. And it seems like there's no way out. We look at verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So he's saying, inside of me, I do have this desire to do good, but there's also this sinful side that's evil as well. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. There's part of him that really enjoys the word of God in his inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So we have this war inside of ourselves as believers. This desire to follow God. This desire to be in the word. This desire to be obedient. This desire to do good. But we also have our evil, sinful nature that we're going to have till we go home to be with the Lord. And the two just war with each other. And the two just go at it with each other. And that's why the words of the psalmist resonate with us. In Psalm 17, when I awake in your presence, I'll be satisfied because I will be like you. There's going to be a moment that we're going to see God and be like him and no longer struggle with sin. And that's the day we long for. I long to see Christ and I long to wake up in his presence and no longer struggle with sin. That's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. So we have this warring that takes place inside of our members. In verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, God bless you guys. Have a good night. There's no hope. (laughs) Oh, an amen. Can I get an amen? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice there's a change in the question. Just a few verses prior, he says, how? How will I perform this? I'm struggling with the how. And he comes to verse 24, and I think it is healthy for us to go through this process. We don't want to stay here. This is a valley we have to go through and walk through to understand in me dwells no good thing. How do I get over this? I don't have the power in and of myself. It's no longer a how, but now it's a who. I need a deliverer. I need Jesus. This becomes very unhealthy if we don't get to the feet of Jesus Christ. 
if we don't get to his grace applied to our particular struggle. It's interesting, during this time in the Roman Empire, if you murdered someone and you killed someone, sometimes they would take the corpse of the person that you killed and they would have them put onto your body and you would carry that around as part of your punishment. And that's what Paul's referring here. He's saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this, this dead corpse? And that's how we feel about our sinful nature. It's who's going to take care of this? Who's going to help me be freed from this struggle and this failure with sin? And here's the key verse. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The answer is not how, it's who, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Paul never wasted words. He never mistakes of where he put the words. This is very systematic after he laid out this truth of the law. It's not law that's going to bring freedom from sin. It's relationship with Jesus Christ. He's saying, I've tried through the law. I've tried through my own systems. I've tried to fix myself and it led to greater condemnation. I need Jesus. I need to not be preoccupied with my sin. I need to be preoccupied with Jesus. He's the one that frees us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. So the end of verse 25, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he still has this struggle inside of him. It's not that this struggle ever completely goes away. Then look at quickly at verse 1 of chapter 8. There's there, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want to whet your appetite, your thirst a little bit for Romans chapter 8, is please go home and start re- reading and studying Romans chapter 8, the life in the Spirit and the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. It's Christ who delivers us from this body of death. So simple application for us tonight is don't try more rules. Don't try more legalism. Don't put that upon yourself and don't put that upon other people. Don't get preoccupied with your sin and your own failure and your own shortcomings, but be preoccupied with Jesus Christ. Focus on Christ. And what a great way as we come to the communion table to do that tonight. Think about him. Reflect upon him. He loves you. He died for you. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that you could be forgiven tonight as a believer. Isn't that good news? We sin. We're wretched. And we agree with God and he pours out his forgiveness. We've been buried with Christ and we're risen in newness of life. You don't have to try to approach God through rules and regulations any longer. God's not impressed by us keeping rules You can be in the newness of the Spirit. Spend time with Him. Let's be broken before the Lord tonight. Let's meet with Him and ask for that fresh filling and that power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you've noticed this in your life. I've noticed it in mine. I really haven't experienced victory over sin when I get preoccupied on a struggle with sin and try to knock it out like a heavyweight fighter in a boxing match. The sin always wins hands down. But when I get caught up in the character and the nature of Jesus Christ, when I find myself thinking about his goodness and his grace, worshiping him, reading the word and being in adoration of his character and and his kindness, just blown away by who he is over a period of time, I go, wow, there's some victory. God's done something. 
It's been a work of the Spirit. It's been a work that He has done. Put our focus on Christ. Easier said than done. Take your eyes off of yourself, off of your sin, and look to your Savior. Engage there. Look upon Him. Meet with Him. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We've tried in our own strength and our own efforts and rules we've placed on ourselves and rules that other people have placed upon us and it's, it's just led to death. It's led to the fruit of death. We're exhausted. We're frustrated. Who can deliver us from this body of death? In us dwells no good thing. We thank you, Jesus, that you're the one who delivers And we have a simple prayer tonight. Jesus, would you be magnified? Father, would you pour out your spirit in a new and fresh way? Would you bring new life as we spend time at the communion table? God, would you meet all of us in those areas of struggle? Would you bring about victory for your glory? We claim your promise that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray against the enemy. We pray in the way that he would want to use scripture against us. May we leave tonight being encouraged and edified. In Jesus' name, amen.